First Peter 2, the first 12 verses. Wherefore, lay as, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Thank you. You may be seated. In our series of sermons on 1 Peter, we're ready today for chapter 2, verse 4, and it's uh, very much a continuation of the uh, theological smorgasbord that we've been dipping into here. It is uh, a bit overwhelming to me as I um, study and prepare and uh, just feel like in many ways uh, I, as I prepare, am only understanding a small portion of what is being communicated here, and I think that a sense of that awe and wonder is something that actually God wants us to have as we study scriptures. I think our questioning should never lead us to um, um, a feeling of, of smugness where we are um, um, questioning or not understanding for the sake of, of uh, complexity, but I think that our questioning and our lack of understanding should move us and drive us toward God, who does understand everything, who initiated everything, who is the foundation of everything as we uh, understand and, and study here. It makes it very clear that um, God is before all things. He is the one who chooses everything. He is the one that decides everything. He is, does not need to answer to anyone, and certainly not is uh, way beyond the bounds of anything that I or any other human being ever experiences. <clears throat> I've entitled the sermon today, A Special Identity, <clears throat> and felt like I should maybe just tack on to that, and calling. A Special Identity and Calling. <clears throat> you recall that Jesus, when he was here on earth, spoke about heaven as being his father's house. And he talked about preparing that house and talked about the fact that there are mansions, buildings that are awaiting believers when we get to heaven. And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He is clearly speaking of a literal place to which one day all believers will go and enjoy, talking about heaven. But until then, we live here on earth in an imperfect world, which uh, First Peter talks about and, and uh, 
gives instructions about and how we should live here on the world, the imperfect place that we know as uh, Earth. And um, it is interesting that while heaven is referred to as a building and a prepared place that is built and developed, Peter and Paul also talk about life and earth as we know it um, in, in a bit of a similar way where they, uh, both Peter and Paul talk about the church and talk about life as an analogy of a building. In Ephesians 2, Paul goes into a certain amount of uh, detail and uses some of these same themes or same thoughts that we'll be uh, addressing here today in 1 Peter. It seems that Peter, as he's uh, talking and teaching here, writing in 1 Peter 2, he describes uh, our lives and our lives collectively, uh, a group of believers, as a building. And I see it, as, at least from my perspective, in four parts. I see the basis, or let's call it the foundation. And he makes it very clear, that's Christ. We are built on Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the, the, the headstone. He is the, the foundation stone upon which everything else is built. He is the foundation. And then there's the building that is built on top of the foundation, and that's us, believers. And Peter talks about our identity and our calling as believers, being built on that foundation and how we should conduct and live our lives and how we should think about our position in relation to, to what God wants for us. So there's the foundation, there is the, the building, there is the blueprints, and then finally uh, the builders of, of this, the people or the, uh, the construction of it in itself. So I'd like to take a look at least in the first part of the sermon here on these, these four parts. In verse 4, we uh, just heard it read to us. I want to break in there. It says in the King James Version, to whom coming? And uh, the NIV and maybe some other translations talking about coming to Jesus, which is the subject there. Jesus, the Lord is gracious, it says in verse Three, and we are coming to him. Come to Jesus. That's a phrase that is familiar to the Christian faith. We come to Jesus. Come to him as a living stone. And we can immediately see that Peter is drawing the analogy of a building, a foundation, a living stone. Now, in, I'm told that you, when you tour Israel, you'll be hard-pressed to find any building or much of any construction that is used with stick construction or two-by-fours or lumber. I think in Israel, as I understand it, wood is maybe a bit scarce. But even beyond that, stones, rocks, is the most plentiful thing around. And there's lots and lots of stones, lots of, lots of uh, rocks, some of them very large. And this is at least partially why that in Israel today there is not stick construction. It is that the buildings are built with stone, stones, rocks, mortar, concrete, that sort of thing, because it's plentiful, it's everywhere. And so the buildings, especially the building of the temple, which seems as if Peter is drawing um, at least memories of that, if we think that it's possible, remember the story when uh, Jesus and the disciples were uh, in Jerusalem and they were marveling at the construction of the temple. And Peter says, you know, look at these amazing stones. And Jesus prophesied the destruction of the, of the temple at that point. It seems as if Peter is maybe recalling that story. And he talks about the massive stones that were the foundation. Coming to Jesus as a living stone. 
a stone that's alive. Now, that's an oxymoron. There is, we, we talk, in, in English at least, we talk about being as dead as a stone or as lifeless as a stone. A stone is cold, it is hard, it is lifeless. But in this case, Peter reminds us that Jesus is a stone that is living, that is alive. An oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. Well, what Peter is talking about here is that this living stone has strength. It is alive. It is not dead, as we think of stones in general. But this is a unique stone. It's the rock of Jesus Christ. And he is the foundation. He is the rock upon which everything else is built upon. So he uses this analogy of Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And it's a theme that runs throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, numerous times, and throughout the New Testament as well, Jesus Christ is called the chief cornerstone, or the rock upon which everything else follows. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that there was a rock that, well, he's in the historical aspect there in 1 Corinthians 10, he's giving a rehearsal of all the miracles and the amazing things that happened in the wilderness to the children of Israel. And he says that he remembers the rock that was smitten. I think Joseph Peachy has been talking about that in his last couple of sermons, that Jesus Christ is a picture of the rock that was smitten and life came out of that rock. Nourishment. Water, refreshing, came out of that rock. And 1 Corinthians, Paul says that that rock was Christ. He makes it very clear. There's no doubt about, there's no confusion about what the rock indicates or what it stands for. So when Peter wanted to talk about the kind of hope that we have back in chapter 1 and in uh, um, verse 3, he talks about a living hope. He says that our hope is something that is alive. It's not based on, on things that are lifeless. It is meaningful. It is a living hope. And then a little bit later, he talks about the living Word of God. And now he's talking about a living stone. And numerous translations say the living stone. And I think that's probably an accurate way to translate it. Now, it is interesting that if you remember, uh, Peter's name means rock. And I believe that he was one of the apostles that was with Jesus when they were um, there in Jerusalem. I made reference to that a bit ago. And they called attention to the amazing structure that was the temple. I wouldn't be surprised if that's at least partially what Peter has in mind as he's teaching and writing here. What kind of living stone is he? What kind of stone is Christ? Well, the text here says that he's the cornerstone. And if you know something about ancient buildings, even if you know something about current buildings, there needs to be a point of reference there needs to be a set of angles that determine the fixture, fixture of, especially the foundation of a building. And there needs to be great care taken that the reference point does not move. Else the building and the, um, yeah, the angles and all of that would uh, be in danger of, of being skewed. So cornerstones... And ancient building were probably the largest, if sometimes at least the largest, the heaviest stones that were part of the construction. They were carefully hewn. They provided the footing for the building. Everything else was built on top of that. And that day they probably did not lay concrete slabs or put in concrete footers as we do today, but they cut out massive hewn stones. They were carved and chiseled to create the the footing or the foundation for the entire building. So if you go to Jerusalem today, I'm told that the cornerstone of the temple is still there in existence. And the southeast corner of, of Jerusalem and the, the part of the temple mount there, and they had the cornerstone, which I, I uh, did a little bit of research, get this, this stone measures 
39 feet long, just a bit over 39 feet long. It is 7 feet 10 inches or almost 8 feet wide, and it is 43 inches tall. That's a massive stone, and it estimated that it weighs probably at least 80 ton. That's 8-0, huge, huge stone. And I'm told that, that in that particular case, that is not the largest stone for this building, which used to be the temple. So the cornerstone is this massive, hewn rock, Jesus Christ. And the rest of the building, all the building is built off, off of that stone. The building would go in one direction. If it wasn't lined up quite right, or it, it, would, it could easily be that you could skew it one direction or the other just by uh, carelessness. The stones, if they're not laid right, if they weren't cut just perfectly, the building could collapse, potentially either inward or outward. So we think of the cornerstone as being a reference point for the entire building or for the rest of the building. That's what the cornerstone is or was in ancient times. So Jesus Christ is described by Peter as the chief, the living cornerstone, the foundation upon which everything else is laid. I hope that Jesus Christ is the foundation of your life. My prayer as I preach and as I studied this, that there would be no other stone upon which our lives are being built. Reminds me of the song, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And uh, I, yeah, I, my prayer is that our church and our lives collectively and individually would be built on Jesus Christ. Again, I draw attention to the fact or the opening verses or words there in verse 4, to whom coming or coming to Jesus, coming to him. That's where it begins for all of us. And we come to him. We come to him day after day after day. All of our lives should be a picture of saying yes to him, of coming to him. Faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, while he was here on earth, gave the instruction or the uh, commandment, if you, the invitation for us to come to him. Come unto me, he said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so here's God. He's got this building program going. It's underway. And he invites us to be part of it. But the basis for, the found, the basis for that building, the foundation, is Jesus Christ himself. <clears throat> Secondly, we notice the building. And now he switches in verse 5. He says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone in verse 4. He is the foundation, the living stone. And he goes on to say that we also are living stones. How about that? We are living stones, not because of anything that we've done, but because of our connection to Christ. Our connection to Christ makes us alive, and that's just profound. Ye also, as living stones, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You know, the word, the term Christian means little Christ. The idea is that we are a miniature Jesus. That's a tall order. But the point is that this stone is alive and it gives meaning and gives life, gives purpose to anybody or anything that comes in contact with this stone. And when we're connected with him, and we're part of the building, when we're built on Jesus Christ as a foundation, the Bible indicates that his spirit gives us life. The life and strength that exists in Christ begins to exist in us as well. And you know, Christianity really is the only belief system where the life of the one we worship becomes our life. Think about Buddhism or um, the Muslim uh, faith and, and religion, they don't receive life from their leader. The Christian faith is alive in that sense 
because we get life from our leader. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we also, then shall ye also appear with him in, in glory. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, which is, uh, comes up a bit later on in our study here of First and Second Peter. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, and so on, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. It's our connection to the rock that calls the foundation that allows us to also be, become living stones. I want to talk just briefly about the um, spiritual sacrifices. And um, there's at least four things that I see in scriptures uh, throughout the New Testament that talk about our lives or things coming from our lives as being a spiritual sacrifice. Notice that phrase there in verse 4, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So we are the building, uh, we are enabled to be priests, to do the work of God, and he says that we are offering spiritual sacrifices. The first thing that comes to my mind is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which is very oft quoted in our, in our church today and has been quoted throughout Anabaptist, uh, uh, throughout church history for, for good reason. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now he's getting, um, translating life into the sacrifice itself. And it's, to, in order to be a living sacrifice, we are giving our hands and feet. We're giving our bodies, the things that, we, that come from us in, in our life. You know, it's a dead sacrifice is what the children of Israel were used to. They killed the animal and then sacrificed. But now... Paul is drawing the analogy of a sacrifice that is alive. And a living sacrifice, it seems in my way of thinking, a living sacrifice would have a tendency to squirm off the altar. But I think the analogy is just strong there that it's important for us to be living sacrifices, to constantly and always commit ourselves to doing Christ's work. Lord, I give you my life. That's what we're... That's, that should be a commitment. And there's going to be times in our life where we say, well, man, I'm not sure about that commitment I made. And, but at that point, we get back on the altar. Live it out. Another sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise. Talked about in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Talks about the sacrifice of praise, coming to God continually. We notice that same uh, thought over and over again. Coming to, to God. Continually, That's the sacrifice of praise, where we say, God, you are awesome. I trust you. I believe you. And those are things that we need to say to God always and in any, all situations. It's a sacrifice of praise. And then thirdly, we see the sacrifice of good works in the very next verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. But to do good and communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The sacrifice of good works, where we're offering works, kind of like the priests in the Old Testament. They dedicated huge chunks of their time and their lives to serving others, to serving, to doing the work of God, interceding for, on behalf of the people. The priests went about their duties in a team with other people. They were united with the other priests around them, and they did the work out of Joy, not necessarily only obligation, but they did it with a, a purpose, and it was done with meaning. Good works. We are priests that offer, share with people. The Bible indicates is a sacrifice that we bring to God. The fourth example would be in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, where Paul talks about giving. And in this case, he specifically mentions financial giving as a spiritual sacrifice. 
And I'm sure that that would result to any kind of giving where we give things that our, as we call, as we say, ours. We recognize that what we have comes from God and we give it back to God. That's the teaching of the, of the scriptures. I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable to God. And that gives us an insight on how God looks at our gifts, our giving. <clears throat> so now we've talked about the basis. We've talked about the building. And now thirdly, let's talk about the blueprints. And in, here in the text, he ref, refers to three passages, three texts or three passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And I think that is very instructive. Right here in the midst, I've pointed out, I think in the last sermon, how numerous times from verses 21 and maybe just prior to that, yeah, from maybe 20, let's say 22 to chapter 2, verse 8, there are, I think, maybe seven or eight references to the Scriptures, the Word. And here he builds on that, and he says that it's contained in the Scriptures, He's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament. It's contained in the Scriptures. That's the blueprints. And he quotes three verses, two from the book of Isaiah and one from the book of Psalms. And he builds on this same theme. These verses talk about Jesus Christ and predict Jesus Christ being the stone, not only the foundation stone about, upon which all of our lives are built, but he builds on this idea that the stone is going to be rejected. It's prophesied in the Scriptures, the blueprint of the Scriptures. It's the Old Testament. And I could say more about that. I think we're just going to move on. Now, the builders. The real builder is, is God in verse 4. We can see that. Chosen of God. God is the builder that chose Jesus Christ to be the chief cornerstone. He is the living stone. He was rejected of men, but chosen by God. God is the builder. And then in verse 7, Peter talks about another set of builders that rejected the stone. It uses the word disallowed in verse 7 in the King James Version. I think in some other translations it would use the, the word uh, rejected, which is, I think, the similar or the same meaning. There was another set of builders that Peter is referring to that rejected Jesus Christ, and we get that. These were wannabe builders. I think it's probably talking about the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin of Jesus' time. They had a measuring stick by which they measured Jesus, and they compared Jesus to they're skewed in their flawed interpretation, and they examined Jesus, they followed him around, they listened to his teachings, they used that measuring, that measuring stick, they applied it to Jesus, and they said, hmm, doesn't fit. Not going to work. And they surveyed Jesus Christ, they, they surveyed and examined his claims that he was the Messiah, but they rejected it. They checked out Jesus as possibly being the cornerstone but they said, reject him. He didn't pass their calculations. They rejected him. And you know, here we are 2,000 years later, and people are still doing that. They're still looking at Jesus. They're still evaluating his predictions and his prophecies and his teachings, and they say, not mine. And perhaps even sitting here today, there are people in this auditorium that are doing that. You're familiar with the teachings of Jesus. You're familiar with the life of Christ. But you say, not for me. So Jesus is a lively, lively stone, a living stone. But there's the possibility that he can be rejected. We're living in a time where I think increasingly, at least in American culture, I'm talking about American or United States culture, 
more and more frequently, Christians are not seen as good to have around. More and more Christians are the curd in the milk. More and more Christians are seen as undesirable. More and more society around us and the society that we live in here in America, Christians are not appreciated and seen as important or valuable. That's how it was in Peter's time. That's how it it is today in many places in the world. But I'm saying more and more, that's how it is here in the United States, the society that we're living in. The real builder is God. Verse 4, chosen by God and precious. I want to build on that word just a little bit later on. He is precious. You see, what Peter wants us to know is that the Jewish Sanhedrin had a measuring line. They had evaluations that they used, but so did God. God also had a measuring stick. God also had an evaluation of Jesus. And at least twice it's recorded in Jesus' earthly ministry here that there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus passed a test from God's perspective, and that's what counts. So Jesus came, and the Jewish leaders, the people of that time, rejected him, at least some of them. They wanted him crucified. They carried out the crucifixion through the help of the Romans. They got rid of him. And then Peter, whom we're studying his book here, he stood up in Acts chapter 4, and he uses some of these same words to the people that he preached to there in the day of Pentecost. He said, let it be known to you. Actually, it was not the day of Pentecost. It was one of the, I think maybe the time when the cripple was healed there in the temple. He said, let it be known to you that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I'm putting in my own words, he is the chief cornerstone. He's the one that God raised from the dead. And that's why this cripple stands before you healed. And Peter continued his sermon. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone in that passage there in Acts 4. In other words, he's preaching to these Jewish leaders who had rejected him. And he says, you might have rejected that stone, sure enough, but God did not. And one of the reasons we know that God did not reject him is because he is resurrected. That's what this means, I think, in this passage. One of the things about First and Second Peter is that there's Lots of repetition, frequent uses of certain words. And I'd like to call attention to that in our study as we go through. I've already done some of that. Uh, One of those words that comes up frequently is the word precious. And I'm just going to take a little bunny trail to show this to you here. The word precious, it comes up uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, where it talks about our faith being precious. In chapter 1, verse 19, it talks about the precious blood of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus is the precious living cornerstone, the headstone. We see that the same in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 7. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, again, our faith is called precious. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we have exceeding great and precious promises. Now, I know, like I said, that's a bit of a bunny trail, but I I think it is just so neat to see that summary of at least seven times, at least in the King James Version, the word precious is used. And I would add an eighth one in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. The word peculiar there has a very similar, almost identical meaning to the word that's translated precious in the other instances there. The word precious has, means that there are something is of great worth or it is highly valued. It is something that you don't want to do without. Something that is precious in our lives. Or if, if there's a, a, a person or a thing that's precious to us, our thoughts are going to be consumed with that person or thing. If something is precious to us or somebody is precious to us, we're going to guard that person or that thing. We're going to make sure that their needs are met. If something or someone is precious to us, we're going to dread the thought of harm 
or loss coming to that person or thing. We're going to find it almost impossible to think about, to, to come to grips with the thought of doing without it. And I think that's what fills Peter's mind as he talks and thinks about these precious things in First and Second Peter. <clears throat> I want to just uh, take a little bit of a shift now and uh, summarize and capture some um, thoughts in relation to our identity as believers. And this text here is full of them. I see numerous identities, and I've picked some of them out, and I'm, I think uh, as I read and evaluated even this morning, I was re- reading this passage again, and I think there could be more, but I have uh, seven or eight of them here. Our identity as believers. First of all, believers are living stones, and I've already covered some of this. We're built into a spiritual house, Jesus Christ being the headstone, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the stone that everything else is connected to. Jesus is the stone that everything else comes or is built on top of. He is the precious cornerstone. For some, he is a rock of offense, it says in verse 6. For some, he is the one that causes people to stumble or to reject him. But Peter says that for him and for us, for true believers, Jesus is the cornerstone. And since we're connected to that rock, we also are living stones. That's a tremendous identity, a wonderful thought. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a chosen people. See that there in verse 9. We're a chosen generation. Um, Yeah, our... Who we are as believers, we're chosen by God. We talked about that in in some of the previous sermons. I I can't really explain that. It's about God's grace. It's about God's decision. And it creates a thanksgiving and a, a praise that comes out of our lives as a result of that. A chosen people. Thirdly, Believers are priests. I've already referred to this a little bit earlier in the sermon. But priests are the ones who offer up prayers. They are the ones who intercede. Priests are the ones who offer spiritual sacrifices. They serve the people that they're called to to lead. And he says that believers are priests. We are sanctified, set apart by God, holy. He continues on that same thought where we are a holy nation. And I think as much as any time, in, at least in American history, we should need to be reminded that Christians sing a different national anthem. We pledge our allegiance to a different flag because our true citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. Fifthly, believers are God's possession. Look at verse 9. Peculiar, he uses, this, it's an old word for Precious has a very similar meaning. Think about that. The value of some of the most common things is greatly enhanced depending who owns or owned that common thing. For example, when you're at a family sale, the items that are auctioned off at, a fam- at your grandpa's sale or wherever, your great-grandpa's sale, are some, of, some of them sell for outrageous or extraordinary prices just because... It was grandpa's. And you could say the same thing. If, if you know of something that was owned by a famous person, such as Abraham Lincoln, or um, somebody, uh, uh, an American uh, figure like, like Abraham Lincoln, mere men, but the fact that they owned it enhances the value. And that's how it is with us. The fact that God owns us makes believers Something very precious. We are his peculiar treasure, his precious treasure. Think about that. Believers have received God's mercy. We're received according to chapter 2, verse 10. And time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. It's built right on this saying, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How precious is that? 
In verses 11 and 12, he continues with maybe a little bit of a different thought, and I'll get to that in a minute, but there's more identities written here. First of all, uh, he says that believers are loved by God. Look what he says there in verse 11. Dearly beloved. And again, this is a repetition. I think eight times in the books of First and Second Peter, Peter uses this word beloved. He says that believers, you are loved by God. God loves you. That's a very encouraging thing. And he goes on to say, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, which is my last and final one, at least, that I picked out. Strangers and pilgrims. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are sojourners. The word sojourners has the idea of living alongside. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are a couple of stories, uh, incidents, where people um, left the land, uh, their homeland, the land of Israel, let's say, and sojourned in another place, a neighboring country. And that means that they lived alongside the people of that time. And that's exactly the picture that we have for our lives as believers. We are not home. We're not in our homeland. But we're living alongside other people. We're pilgrims. Travelers is another word. A visitor, somebody who stops by temporarily but is on the move. That's a pilgrim. We're outsiders. In the words of Jesus Christ himself, we are in this world but not of the world. In the world but not of it. First John, do not love the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For everything that's in the world is passing away. And Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3, and he says, For our citizenship is in heaven. Oh yeah, we're still citizens of Lancaster County and Pennsylvania and the United States, but our real citizenship is in heaven. And it causes us to to live our lives in in a different way than if it were just the other. Because we're citizens of heaven makes us kind of like square pegs in a round hole. We may as well get used to that. We may as well expect that. That's how it is for believers in most places in the world. And for a lot of decades now, we have not had so much of that in the United States. But it's it's more and more that way, where we are, like I said, the curd in the milk. The part that people wish would just disappear somehow. We need to know who we are. We need to be realize our identity. And when we do, I think knowing this, our identity, gives us a, helps to give us proper balance to our lives. And it's very easy to get off balance in the life that we live. I've always enjoyed the story about Samuel Morrison, who was a missionary to Africa most of his life. And uh, one of the times he was coming back to the United States in a ship, after having been gone a while, he was uh, headed for the New York Harbor, he and his wife, And it so happened that on the boat, on that same boat, was President Theodore Roosevelt, who had been on a hunting trip, on a safari to Africa. And he had spent several weeks there hunting big game in Africa. And when the boat pulled into the New York Harbor, there was a very large crowd who were aware that Theodore Roosevelt was returning on that particular ship. And there was a lot of festivities, there was bands and banners, and lots of welcome for Theodore Roosevelt. People shouting, But Samuel Morrison looks over at his wife and he says, nobody's cheering for us. We're completely unnoticed. And I think Samuel Morrison in that moment was a little bit um, disturbed by noticing the fanfare for the president who had been over in Africa shooting animals. And he had spent nearly all his life trying to win souls to start churches to bring people to Jesus Christ, and there was no fanfare for him. And he mentioned some of that to his wife, and his wife said, Honey, but we're not home yet. And I think it's so instructive. That story helps me understand um, or sort through some of my feelings. The world that we live in is not our home. Well, one of 
the things that we see here in these uh, verses 10 or verses 11 and 12 especially. He shifts just a little bit, and this becomes an introduction to the next sermon, which is the next uh, section here about how we're to live, uh, starting in verse uh, 12 uh, all the way into oh, chapter 4 and, and uh, 5. The rest of the book basically is this introduction. Right here in verse 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. So there's fleshly lusts. And we uh, heard that in our sermon last week. Manny Glick talked about Galatians chapter 5 and one of his introduction into his sermon last Sunday and it talks about all the works of the flesh and it lists a pretty long list and it says uh, what, what's the ending there it slips my mind right now but it's sort of like etc 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 it's an endless list and so on and so on and so on all of these works of the flesh that are warring against the soul you see, what Peter is doing here is building on the inside. And most of us understand that one of the, our biggest struggles is not the people and things around us. The biggest struggle is, that I have is Dave Stolzfus. I should be more alert about what's going on in my own heart. I should be more concerned about the sin and the, tendency, the tendencies of my own heart than what's going on around us. It's easy for us to have that switched. But Peter says that there's these fleshly lusts which war against our soul. He's talking about something that comes inside of us as believers. What's the solution? What's the fix? And he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it's the works or the fruit of the Spirit are a solution to the works of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. <clears throat> Well, let me just summarize uh, uh, in closing here. I think it's correct to think of ourselves as a f sort of like a fortress with gates and walls. All of us have an eye gate. We have an ear gate. And there's things like touch and taste and, and smell, five senses that dominate our existence here on earth. It's, it, it's the, 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 the way that we process pretty much everything that comes at us or is it around us through our five senses. And we should think of it in terms of when the enemy comes, there's times where we need to close the gate. We need to close the gate. Paul says in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God that you may withstand the devil. Close the gate. Put on the whole armor of God. Wage war. And this word war that's used here in verse 11 has the idea of not a little skirmish. It's a long-term war. It's a, it's a long-term engagement. That's the word that is used in the, in the Greek. This is not just some little skirmish that we're in, but we're in it for the rest of our lives. It's something that I've often been amazed at as I visit old people, sometimes even practically on their deathbed, are still struggling with this flesh that's inside of them. And uh, it, it just needs to be a, uh, a reminder to all of us. I want you to notice uh, the 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 in the NIV. Um, again, just maybe just a little, another way of saying it. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I want to just dip in a little bit on this day of visitation. I don't have very much on that other than uh, I know that at least twice in the Old Testament uh, there's reference made to God visiting his people. And Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, she said that she heard that there was bread in Bethlehem. She was in the land of Moab and was ready to go back to her homeland, which was Bethlehem. And she said that God visited Bethlehem with bread. In Zechariah chapter, um, which was a blessing, by the way. In Zechariah chapter 10, 
there's another reference to God's visitation, and in that time, he is saying that God's visitation is judgment. And Peter, as he's writing here, I think is talking about the future. He's talking about a day when God will visit us, when believers will once again be visited by God. And I thought to myself, that's exactly how it is. This same analogy applies. When God comes to visit us, when he returns to earth, it does two things. It brings blessing to some people, the believers, and it brings judgment to others. And I ask you, how is it for you? Which side are you on? When Jesus comes back, how will it be for you? There's just two words here that I want to close with. First of all, a word to believers. I think according to this text and this passage of Scripture... If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you can know this. Life is built on character, and character is built on choices or decisions that we make. Every choice, every decision that we make, whether it's large or small, does something to our lives. And it's like a sculptor's chisel uh, does to a block. It shapes it. We become shaped by the things that happen to us and around us, and our decisions and our way of processing that. Every choice you make shapes who you are. And it shapes how people around you are also looking at you and how they will view what God is doing in your life. You're on display in many ways. And that's why the exhortation there in verse 12 is so important. God or the people around us are are watching us. They're seeing how we're processing things. And we'll cover more of that. We'll build on that as we enter into the rest of the book of 1 Peter. We're on display. And I think that's why this exhortation is so important. And then finally, there's a word to unbelievers. I believe that Christians... Well, let me say it this way. I know for sure that the Christian history, the history of, of Christianity has not been perfect. There have been... Huge periods of time in our history where awful things have happened in the name of, of Christianity. And even today, there are people that make the comment and say, the church is full of hypocrites, and that's why I don't want to be a Christian. Well, let me just tell you, maybe, maybe you're a person like that. Maybe you're a person that's fixated on the hypocrites. I want to remind you that in that day of visitation that Peter talks about, It won't be the hypocrites that are judging you. Conversely, it won't even be you judging the hypocrites. But it is going to be God judging us. God looking at our lives. And that changes it altogether. The smartest thing that we can do is to build our lives on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The one who has all the right angles, who has the right directions... He has the right stability. We get eternal life as we connect ourselves with him. We have adequate strength to build this building. And again, harking the words of the song, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you're able, I invite you to kneel as we pray.